Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We are going to be in Isaiah 53. Um, you know, by way of opening, I, I'm, I'm a Jew. Uh, that's the part of my heritage with which I identify most. There are other mixes in my generational bloodlines. My mother, for example, her entire family was, uh, were Spaniards. My father's side, my paternal side, comes from Eastern Europe. My father was a Polish Jew, and I identify deeply with the Jewish people through him. That said, though, there are actually other opinions as to who I am, as to my identity, especially as a Jew. For example, I'm Jewish enough for the conservative and reformed branches of Judaism, but I'm not Jewish enough for the Orthodox, because they only recognize maternal lineage, and my father was a Jew. That's okay with the conservative and reform, not so okay with the Orthodox. Um, and by the way, I don't know where that puts Manasseh and Ephraim because they were sons of an Egyptian uh, who was a daughter of a pagan priest and we have no record of her conversion, but that's just the lawyer in me coming out. That's an argument for another time. <laughs> but what complicates things for me and for my Jewish brethren and friends is that I'm also a Christian, a so-called messianic, and that's not like a term of honor around Jews. It's just like, oh, he's a messianic. But I embrace it because I believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. That's just the way it is. But because I believe that, I'm probably not Jewish enough for any of the branches of modern Judaism. And quite honestly, the, the opinions don't stop there. Because I'm entirely too Jewish for all the racists and anti-Semites and Nazis in this world, neo-Nazis. There, there are people who would literally, they would rather kill me than talk to me. That's just where I fall. Some people think I'm a Jew. Some people think I'm not Jewish enough. Some people think I'm too Jewish. So who am I is the question I ask. But what I found is that that's not the foremost question to ask through the years. I think a much more important question than who am I is who do I know? Who do you know? Allow me to give you the answer to that question because when I tell you who I know, it's really, I think it's going to rock your world a little bit because it is really quite impressive. Now, I'm not one usually to drop names, but in this case, I'm willing to make an exception because my friends, are you ready for this? I, me, here in front of you, personally, intimately, relationally, know the Messiah of Israel. That's a pretty big deal. I know him personally. Did I say that? Personally. That's an amazing statement that I can make, that we can make. And you know, I have a friend, his name is Rick Johnson. And Rick actually got to meet the president, George W. Bush, while he was still in office. 
And he got to pray with him and a handful of three or four other people in the Oval Office. I think it was his last act as, as president. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, what's, what's uh, more, someone actually took a snapshot of that meeting. And there they are holding hands, heads bowed, praying in the Oval Office. And my friend has that picture proudly displayed on his office wall. And I would too, wouldn't you? I mean, that's, that's quite a privilege to, play, to pray with the President of the United States. But impressive as that may be, I think I have my friend Rick beat on this meeting important people thing because I, I've met and I know Eric Cobb. Um, and I count that a high privilege, by the way. A great privilege. But, like I said, I know the Messiah. I know the King of Israel who also happens to be the King of the universe. As it said so often in Jewish literature, Blessed be the Lord, our God, King of the universe. I mean, that's something, isn't it? I mean, POTUS, President of the United States, that's pretty good. I don't want to browbeat that, but King of the universe. And I know him personally as an intimate friend. In fact, we talk every day. I don't know if you knew that, but we do. So for the record, uh, I have to say that my friend Rick knows him too, so he's still up on me uh, you know, regarding important people, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. In this case, in my case, in your case, what's more important than what am I is who do I know? And we who know the Christ our heirs with him of his riches and blessings. We who are of faith, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 7 and 29, are also sons of whom? Abraham. So as it applies to me, I guess in Jesus, I'm doubly a Jew. I'm a Jew by race and I'm a Jew by grace. I'm a Jew times two, baby. That's what I got to say. How about that? Part of the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. And guys, the scripture we're going to look at this week and next tell us, tells us all about this Jesus. This Lord King. This Messiah. And this passage will beckon us to, be, to draw near to God through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. And this is such an appropriate time to study this because... In this next week, we, we also have, anybody know what Jewish holiday? Yom Kippur, right? It's the highest holiday in the Jewish calendar. And we'll talk a little bit more about that perhaps at, during the Lord's table. But uh, what's so significant about it is that it is a prefigurement. It is a picture. It is a shadow of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that also next week a little bit more. But... Let's go to Isaiah 53, and I, I need to get, just before we dig into the actual text, I want to point out some important background uh, points, information. Uh, these are called servant songs. There's four of them in the book of Isaiah. If you want to write these down and you want to look at the other ones, there's, uh, the other three are Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. 
Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13, and Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. The one that we have before us is chapter 52, the last three verses, 13 through 15, and all of Isaiah 53. So let's consider a little bit of background material that will help us get a, a handle on this, on this text. And first of all, as I've already alluded to, um, but the question needs to be asked is, is this, particularly for Isaiah 52 and 53. In these servant songs, <coughs> excuse me, who is God's servant? What is his identity? And I'll have to tell you, historically, rabbinical scholars have attributed this song, especially, especially Isaiah 52 and 53, to the Messiah. They have cleared, the, the vast majority of rabbinical scholars have said that this refers to Messiah. This was true from the day it was written by Isaiah, 700 before, years before the advent of Christianity, all the way up clear into the Middle Ages, about 1000 A.D. The consensus was there. This was referring to Messiah. For example, let me just give you one quote, one example from the Talmud. This is uh, Sanhedrin 98b. It asks the question, the Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say the leprous one. Those of the house of rabbis say the sick one. As it is said, surely he hath borne our sicknesses. And that's a reference directly to Isaiah 53. They knew that this was about Messiah. And some rabbis, you know, because Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, is very upfront about the suffering of Messiah, right? It talks about his exaltation, but it talks more about his suffering. So some rabbis had a problem with this. How do we handle this? And they said, well, then there must be two messiahs. Because the scripture is clear that he suffers and he conquers. So they, they, had a, they said there's going to be a messiah ben Yosef, a messiah son of Joseph, who, you know the story of Joseph, right? He was innocent, and yet he suffered because of his people and for his people and saved his people from famine and death. There's going to be a Messiah ben Joseph and then there's going to be a Messiah ben David, the Messiah son of David who will come as a conquering monarch. But the point is clear that most of ancient rabbinical Judaism believed that these servant songs in 52 and 53 is the most famous one of these, that these refer to King Messiah. Even though they didn't get all the information, couldn't put it all together, it was clear that this was about Messiah. The second question I want to ask, and excuse me, I lost my little, um, the little fuzzy thing that goes on top of the mic, so you'll get some popping from me you know, once in a while. This happened way out there, so if you're looking around today and you see a little black spongy thing, it belongs to the mic, which belongs to the church. Um, the second background question I want to ask is, to whom were these prophecies, these servant songs, and they are prophecies, written? Now, this is a pretty obvious point, but it's so frequently ignored, and if you don't have this in front of you, you can't interpret the text correctly. All right? These servant songs, these prophecies, were written to whom? To the Jews. Okay, to Judah, the southern kingdom, who was about to experience the wrath of the Babylonians to the dispersed sons of Israel in the north. 
and just through the ages to the Jews. This was written to the Jews, which brings us to a very important third point, and that is this. The per- first person plurals you're going to notice all over this, this text. Um, these first person plurals, the we, the us, the our, refer to the people of Israel. So Israel is speaking here. Look at the second half of verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It doesn't say he doesn't have any appearance that they should be attracted to him. It's a we. It's a collective we. It's either Isaiah speaking with a collective we on behalf or with the people or just the people speaking as one. Verse 3, the second half. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is Israel speaking. And guys, what we have here is so unique. This is a confession on the part of the people of Israel owning up to their guilt for rejecting God's Messiah God's message in God himself. That is just to me amazing. And, and some of you are probably thinking ahead of me and saying, wait a minute, what? Israel has never confessed something like this. The nation as a whole has never said, We're, we own up to our guilt for the betrayal of the Lord Jesus and the betrayal of God. So when does this Confession materialize. Well, as we said, it hasn't happened. But you see, the book of Isaiah is largely what? It's prophetic, right? And this prophecy peers into the distant future and eavesdrops on the day when Israel confesses this very thing at the end of time, at the end of history as we know it. This is when Israel turns to King Jesus, recognizing her error in in rejecting him and embraces him as Messiah. And guys, that day is coming. This, This occurs during the time recorded for us in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You say, what happens there? This is the very last chapter of history that is recorded there. And Israel has her back pinned against the wall. And she is, in this text, these texts, she is being assailed by this, if we can put modern names to it, by this Russian, Iranian, Pan-Arab, Middle Eastern, North African force of nations that come against Israel to annihilate her. They're, They're coming in for the kill shot. They're coming in to wipe Israel off the map. Iran will attempt to make good on her present day threats. That combined with the military might of her northern and Arab allies. Now guys, I have to put this in here because historically we have never seen such an international move against Israel with these countries. We have never seen that. So it has to be in the future, even though we see it foaming and forming today, right? 
But at this point in, in Israel's history as a nation, the, the third of the nation that is left, because two-thirds will be wiped out, they call out to the Lord and they call out with broken hearts. And, and God, recognizing their confession, restores them spiritually to himself and, restore, and rescues them from her enemies. They're coming in to destroy Israel. It, God, the God of Israel, stands up to war against her enemies they're coming in for the kill shot. He intervenes and he wipes them out. And this hour of repentance, this hour of deliverance is also captured for us in the book of Zechariah, another prophetic book. And he says this, God is actually speaking. It's chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. He says, and in that day, God is speaking, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's what takes place in Ezekiel 38 and 39. God destroys her enemies, but to Israel he turns and he pours out mercy and grace and repentance. So he says in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. God said, you may have crucified my son, but you pierced me. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly. Sorry. They will weep bitterly over him with a bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem and also great turning. And guys, in that context... This confession that we read about Isaiah 53 happens. In that great day, which also happens to be the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that's the second coming of Christ. And the Apostle John sees this. He sees Jesus coming and he sees the Jewish people turning to him. And he says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And at this point in future history, the words of the Apostle Paul will come and be fulfilled. Romans eleven twenty six, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written in Isaiah 59, 20, by the way. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And the contrite confession Israel will make on that day with genuine Heartfelt, bittersweet tears is found in Isaiah 53. So that's what we're reading here. That's what we're hearing. We get to eavesdrop on Israel's future confession of repentance. So that's our background for Isaiah 53. And as I alluded to before, the, we always say, we talk about Isaiah 53, but it actually, the the previous paragraph in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, is the introduction. It is a summary of Isaiah 53, and we don't have the time to look at it expositionally. Initially, I, I planned to do it. That ended up on my edit, editing room floor uh, because of time. But I, I want to at least summarize the, these verses because they are a summary of Isaiah 53 and the message and ministry, <coughs> pardon me, of God's servant. Look at the, the, those verses with me. 52, beginning with verse 13. Behold, 
My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The whole song begins with a victory, guys. In fact, this at the beginning and at the end of 53, at the beginning in, verse, in chapter 52 and then in, verse, in chapter 53, this is cradled in victory. And the point is here, guys, that Messiah wins. Okay, you want to take away from today? We read the end of the story. It's up in the front here, and Messiah wins. Jesus, Messiah wins. Yes, amen, isn't it? He says, my servant will prosper. He will be successful. He will be magnificently successful in all his mission. He will not fail to redeem his people, to redeem the world. He will prosper. And then it says, he will be high. The Hebrew word for high means really high. (laughs) And he will be lifted up. That is kind of like on the praises of all the earth. The people of the earth will finally see who he is and they won't be able to hold back the praise. He will be lifted up and he will be greatly exalted. The main word is exalted and to that, you know, Isaiah heaps another superlative and he says, greatly, which in the old commentaries is translated muchness. In other words, he's almost grappling for words to describe the glory and success of Messiah. It's really interesting because in chapter 6, where we get the great vision of the Lord and his holiness in the temple, his train and his glory is filling the temple. Remember that? It says he is lofty and exalted. Those are two of the same words used here to describe the glory of Messiah. Only in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Isaiah adds three more descriptors. What he is saying here is the Messiah is as lofty and exalted as God is lofty and exalted, okay? He is El Elyon, God Most High. And then it says, verse 14 just takes a 90 degree turn, no no subtlety here. And all of a sudden he says, we go from the heights of glory to verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He's saying, after that glory, he describes that glory, he says, but you know what? Messiah will be brutalized to the point where he almost loses his humanity. He will be crushed. And we learn from chapter 53 that he is cut off from the land of the living. He is killed. And you say, how do you go from glory to such great suffering? What's the purpose of it? Verse 15, thus, or because of his suffering, thus, it's a clause, thus he will sprinkle many nations. And when a Jew heard those words, sprinkle, he knew what Isaiah was talking about. He's talking about cleansing, either through water, purification rites, or through blood. And in this case, it's the death of Messiah and the suffering of Messiah. It's through his blood. He cleanses many peoples. He succeeds in that. In fact, he says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them. They never heard the gospel before. They will see. They'll go from not hearing to seeing. And what had not been heard, they will understand. They hadn't even heard this, but they'll be able to 
to, to mull it over in their minds, and they will stand, the kings, the rulers of the earth, in awed silence at the work and the mission and success and the glory of Messiah. And what this verse is also telling us is that it's promising the worldwide spread of the gospel. It's going to be believed on among the nations. And that's just a a little summary of what we have in Isaiah 53. It's incredible. uh, I'll tell you, I'm studying this. I told Eric, you know, he asked me how it was going earlier in the week. And it's like, you know, when you have to preach, you get the, you're the first to eat. You're the first to feast. And I have been on a thrill ride, spiritually speaking, all week. So Isaiah 53 here, guys, back to, our, to where we should be going, speaks of Messiah. It speaks of King Jesus. But suffice it to say, as I've suggested already, rabbinical opinion regarding this text has shifted pretty radically. And more than shifted, quite honestly, if I can be brutally honest here, it has just pretty much been ignored by modern Judaism. And if uh, we just posted a link to a YouTube video called the, um, the Forbidden Chapter in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 53. Go to Facebook, look up our ministry, Walking in the Promises. You'll see a link right there. And it's a link that demonstrates this. It's a young man beautiful, handsome, young Jewish guy going around the streets of Israel. I think it's Jerusalem and Tel Aviv or Haifa. And he's interviewing ordinary Israelis and he's taking them, he shows them his Tanakh, his Old Testament, and he's taking them through Isaiah 53 and asking them what it says. And their response is amazing because they've never heard this read. It's never been read to them in the synagogues. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I think you'll, you'll enjoy seeing it. It's only 10 minutes long. 9 minutes and 52 seconds. Was that exact? Okay. That's, just, that's my lawyer coming out. Or maybe that's more my accountant coming out, Mikey. I don't know. But the reason that this has been abandoned by modern Judaism is because, guys, it, it, it reads too much like a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it does talk about Jesus Christ. That's why most Jewish people feel so uncomfortable with this. Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the prophetic lens of Scripture, talks about events that are 700 years in the future and he describes with pinpoint accuracy the sinlessness of Messiah that is, Pardon me, the servant didn't, wasn't punished for his own sin. He was innocent. He was punished for the sins of his people, the sins that he bore. He talks about that. He talks about the Lord's humble beginnings. He talks about his rejection by the people of Israel, the atoning death of Jesus. He talks about his unjust condemnation, his execution, his burial, resurrection, and coming glory. And therein lies the gospel. You know, the gospel has been so hard to believe for my Jewish people, you know, my dear brethren. But I take comfort from the reality, guys, that God is in control. And the response of Israel did not take God by surprise. 
He didn't say, oh my goodness, I didn't believe the message. What am I going to do? In fact, he predicted it would happen 700 years before it happened. And he used and orchestrated all these complex events to achieve the redemption of the world, including Israel. And so with that in mind, the first point I want to make today, and don't worry, we'll get out uh, soon. Um, we're only going to cover three little verses, and we'll do that fairly quickly. Uh, no, we will. I promise you. I promise you. We will. I don't want to keep the people in, uh, in taking care of the children for too long. But the first point that I want to make is found in verse 1, and it's the incredulity of the message, or the unbelievability of the message. Verse 1. Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a forecast of Israel's unbelief, and it's unbelief regarding the person and the work of Messiah. Specifically, it is unbelief regarding the message of salvation. The phrase, the arm of the Lord, speaks of the Lord's salvation. In biblical nomenclature, whenever you hear of the arm, the arm bared, that means that's the strength of someone. In this case, it's the strength of God. And the strength of God is seen most readily in the redemption of men. That's where the power lifting comes in by, from God's part. Saving people from sin takes the greatest amount of power from God. Now, physical miracles are amazing, right? The suspension of the laws of nature. I'm talking about raw, bold, physical miracles, like making an axe head float. That goes against the laws of, of physics, right? Um, raising somebody from the dead who's been dead for three days is contrary to the laws of entropy, <laughs> You know, and physics. But raising, I mean, physical miracles, and I, I don't want to sound flippant by saying this, but flip, physical miracles are a piece of cake for God. The whole of the created universe, including the laws of physics, time and space, in Psalm 8.3 is called the work of your, what? Fingers. The finger work of God. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, we learn that God brought the worlds into existence with a word. It reads in verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Can you imagine that? What those psalms are telling us is that the creation of the universe, with all its amazing complexity, I mean, we can't even enumerate the physical universe, let alone understand it. But all of it was created with a word. He breathed it out with the wave of his fingers. You guys ever become winded by finger painting? <laughs> you know, have your kindergartners come home and say, oh, man, can't believe it today. They really worked us. They had his finger paint for 20 minutes without a break. I mean, aren't there child labor laws? I, I am so whooped. I just, finger painting stresses me out. No, it's minimal creative effort, right? That, the creation of the cosmos, the universe, was for God. Whew, it's done. The divine power lifting, as I said, is seen in the redemption of men. And this is the metaphor 
the arm of the Lord that Isaiah uses in the previous chapter, just before he begins talking about salvation. In Isaiah 52.10, he says, The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. God has rolled up his sleeve, showed his strength. How? To what end? What did he do? That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of God. The Lord bared his holy arm to display the great power of salvation in Isaiah 52 and 53. So the message to Israel was regarding God's salvation in the person and the work of his servant. Yet what we see here is that it would not be embraced or it would be embraced by very few in the nation of Israel. And so we have the lament-filled question of the prophet who has believed our message? Who God gave us a message of salvation. Nobody's believing it, he's saying. It's interesting that at the close of the song's first paragraph, as we mentioned, we see that the, the gospel spreads worldwide and that the nations, the Gentiles, believe. And yet here, Israel herself would be characterized, Isaiah says, by unbelief. And both of these realities, the worldwide spread of the gospel and the unbelief of Israel, have largely come to pass, right? That is where things stand today. Even in our gathering, most of you here are of Gentile origins. And the remnant of Israel is just that. It's a fraction of the world's Jewish population. And God declared that when his message was first brought to Israel, it would be ignored by his people. And so we have the incredulity of the message, unbelief. I hasten to add, though, that more Jews believe in Jesus as the Messiah today than at any other time in the history of the world, than at any other time in the history of the church. And this is a a foretaste of the great harvest of Jewish people who will embrace Messiah at the end. In that day... They will confess this, Psalm 53. And I'll tell you, the incredulity of Israel is still deep and very cold. I, I, I could immigrate to Israel if I just didn't tell them that I believed in Jesus. There was a law before the Knesset. It almost became, came that close to becoming law, but there was enough pressure from Christian groups around the world that killed it and it would have made it illegal up to a three-year sentence to proclaim to say the name of Jesus in Israel. But that incredulity is melting in the light of the glory of the gospel. And it will melt all the way. Say, why was God's message met with such unbelief? There are many reasons, but I want to stick to our text. Part of the incredulity that Israel faces and still experiences back then and now is because of the background of God's servant, verses 2 and 3. And here we'll see three brief points. (coughs) Pardon me. We'll see the lowly upbringing of the Messiah, his unassuming, humble presence, and thirdly, his wholesale rejection by men, and in particular, the Jewish nation. But look at his lowly upbringing. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would come and grow up in a very humble manner, even though he was the anointed of God. Verse 2. For he grew up, Messiah, grew up before him, God, 
like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. God's servant, we are told, would grow up under the watchful, providential eye of his father. He would be seen by God, noticed by God. Nevertheless, the king of kings would be unnoticed by the world and unheralded by his people. The words tender shoot and root out of parched ground describe his lowly upbringing. Tender shoot is not a good thing. Some people see that and they say, oh, look, something tender, a little plant. Not at all. This is not a fresh, vibrant, fruitful branch. This references what we would call a sucker branch. It's that tender branch that grows out of the base of the tree, and it's a net negative, right? It's not even worthless. It's, it's even worse than that because that branch saps energy from the tree, pardon the pun, and it diminishes its growth and diminishes its fruit. So in cultivated trees, sucker branches are cut off and then pruned and, and, and thrown away. The idea behind a parched uh, root out of parched ground is the same thing. It, it, it carries a sense of worthlessness. You don't have to be a botanist to figure this out, but roots like to grow where? Underground, right? That's where the nutrition is. That's nutrients. That's where the, the moisture is. And that's where they perform their, their function. Roots that grow above the surface of the ground do so because of poor soil conditions or drought conditions. And they end up not functioning as roots. All they do is getting the way and people trip up over them. In other words, to the elite, to the powerful, to the people looking to move up the social structure of Israel, a lowly person like this, where their lowly background would be considered useless, worthless, and off-scouring, he wouldn't serve any purpose. The rich and powerful are only looking and influenced by the richer and the more powerful. And even though Jesus was God's servant, the anointed king under the Father's watchful providence, he had a very lowly upbringing. He was considered worthless to Israel. And we see this borne out in the New Testament, don't we? He was born not in a posh palace, but where? He was born in what would be the equivalent for us of a barn. His first bed, it was a bovine stable, right? His first bed was an animal feeding trough. That's what a major is. It's a stall. You muck out stalls. You don't put babies in them. But that was his first bed. He wasn't courted by royalty, but he was worshipped by whom? Shepherds, the low rung on Israeli culture. Those dirty, smelly shepherds. You know, if you meet Eric Cobb in the middle of the day in between calls, he's a vet. He's a horse vet, right? Big animal vet. He'll, you'll see on his scrubs, he's got dirt and stuff like that, and he's sweaty, and, uh, but Tasha cleans him up at the end of the day. <laughs> That's the way it goes here. We have showers. It's really nice. These poor shepherds were just, they never showered. <laughs> They were considered the, yeah, just stay over there with your smelly sheep, right? Not only was Jesus ignored by royalty, the the rulers of Israel, he was worshipped by the lowliest of men. He was born in the tiniest of towns. A town too insignificant to make it on the tourist map. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
The prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, and they prophesied at the same time, said that Messiah, Messiah Jesus, would be born in Bethlehem. And this is what he said, Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was a little agricultural town. You ever travel through Wyoming or Idaho, and you go through a wide spot on the road, and you turn to your wife and say, was that a town? <laughs> Did we pass up something? When we were uh, going to a family re- reunion a few years ago in Wyoming, Val Hale's from Sheridan. Cheyenne, I was close. <laughs> Cheyenne. We passed by Sheridan, and it was on the map, and it's like, like a big city in Wyoming, and I never saw it. Because it was just pasture land and it was inland farther, you know. But Bethlehem Ephrathah was this, was this little tiny agricultural town. And then he says this, Micah, for from you one will go forth to be, for me to be ruler in Israel. And then he says his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Messiah would be eternal. Messiah would be God himself. And he would be born, so he would be a man. Isaiah did much the same thing, prophesied much the same thing. In Isaiah 9, 6, he says, For a child will be born to us, to Israel. In other words, this Messiah is going to be a man. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Messiah is going to be a king. And his name, and this is where the divinity comes in, will be called Wonderful Counselor or ineffable supernatural counselor, mighty God, eternal father, or father of eternity, he who created time, prince of peace. Messiah would be preexistent. He would be God born in the flesh, and yet he would be born in the smallest of little towns. That, they, they knew that was happening. They were just incredulous about it. Jesus also came from a very poor family. This is seen by the sacrifice that his mom and dad made to dedicate him at the temple in Luke chapter 2, as uh, Eric made reference to. You know, the, the normal dedication ceremony, for the, every firstborn child who opened the womb was c- called holy to the Lord. You had to go present him to the, in the temple and on the eighth day where he would be circumcised in the nation of Israel and then present a lamb. But if you were too poor to buy a lamb the law said, then you can bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph did. That was the offering of the poor. In the eyes of Israel, God's servant was worthless, like a sucker branch or a useless drought root, something to be trampled upon. And not only would he be come from a lowly environment, but he would also present an unassuming, humble presence. Second half of verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There would be no outward distinguishing mark that would make Messiah attractive. And Jesus grew up among the peasant class, right? That's not where you go draft royalty. His family, as I said, was poor. His father was not a scholar, the respected rabbi, his father was a humble tradesman. He was born, as we said, in a small town. He grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth was loathed among the Israelites. They hated Nazareth. 
even by their plebeian neighbors in Galilee. The Galileans were considered the low people, <coughs> the hillbillies, the guys from the hick town. And the Judeans, the people up in, in southern Israel, in Jerusalem, just hated the, the Galileans. They thought they, they were only slightly better than Gentiles. They were curse, a cursed people because they didn't understand the law. So the Galileans were the offscouring of the Judeans, and the Nazarenes were the offscouring of the Galileans. Everybody in Israel hated or looked down on Nazareth. Too many Gentiles in the town. Too many Romans. Too many compromisers. Those who had been paganized by Greek culture, Roman culture. Remember that northern part of Israel had been mixed in marriage much more than the south when it was invaded by the Assyrians. This was a town that wasn't even mentioned in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. It was considered literally a good-for-nothing town. That's what Nathaniel called it. Remember when Philip looked up his friend Nathaniel and said, I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel goes, really? Who is he? Jesus of Nazareth. And what did Nathaniel say? Can any, any, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? You want me to follow somebody from Nazareth? Jesus loved Jerusalem, didn't he? He wept over it. But was the Lord known as Jesus of Jerusalem? No. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Culturally, that was not a badge of honor. It's like me being called a messianic. It's like, oh. His enemies probably said it with a sneer. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> and by the way, Jesus was good with it. He was good with that title. And that's why it's used repeatedly in the New Testament over and over. Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't mind. He identified with that. Jesus was also all but homeless during his three-year ministry, right? He told a wannabe disciple, look, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have a home, he said. When Jesus died, all he had were the clothes on his back, and you know what? They took those from him, too. So Melech Ha'olam, the king of the universe, died penniless and naked. In other words... The point is that Jesus didn't have the social pedigree and standing or the bling of the age to draw the mighty and the powerful. He was, has no stately manner or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Hence, we have his wholesale rejection by the people of Israel and by the world. Okay, Real quickly here, we're almost done. We have his wholesale rejection by men and in particular by the nation of Israel. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Jesus was rejected by men and Israel. Remember when 
Eric taught on John, John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's creator, the agent of creation, and the world did not know him. Who are you? The Gentiles, Gentiles rejected him, and they were the chief power behind his execution. That's why the Jews went to the Romans, because they went to Pilate. They didn't have the authority of capital punishment. This was a capital case. And Pilate could have dispensed justice for Jesus, but he was a coward and a power-hungry man, so he condemned him to death illicitly. He was rejected by the world, but he was rejected by his own. Verse 11, he came to his own. Jesus confessed that he came to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet those who were his own did not receive him. And that rejection was the experience of Jesus from his earliest days, guys. It was a result, really, of the collision between perfect, holy deity clashing with rebellious, sinful humanity. There's a lot of pain there. And that produced an ever-growing grief in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. Everything that Jesus encountered in this fallen world was in the front to his perfect holiness to his perfection. And the world hates holiness. We can't stand it. We don't understand it. It makes us uncomfortable. We persecute it. But Jesus faced an ever-growing concentric circle of, of pain, beginning with his home. Can you imagine growing up with a perfect brother? Do you think that was easy for Jesus? He never lied. He was always kind. He was always... Gentle. You say, well, that sounds pretty good. No, not if you're not. You would be faced. It's like living before the law. Oh, man, I am such a disgusting person. Look at him. In fact, his brothers didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection because he was so hard to live with. He had to be. He was perfect deity. Of course, they didn't have a clue about that. But then to his town, they, they turned on him. He came and he read the law they, were, they gave him at the synagogue the scroll of Isaiah. He opened it and read it and said, today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they wanted to kick him out of town. He became ever more familiar with pain. That's the word, that's the literal translation of the word sorrow and grief. Until that collision erupted at the cross. Listen, we're closing with this. But from a worldly perspective, that resume that we've just looked at, that unimpressive, loathsome, sorrowful, painful, grief-stricken life that culminated in the humiliation of Roman cross, that was wholly unacceptable to Israel. It's like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. They couldn't stand him. We don't even want to look at you. And we did not esteem him. But this was all part of God's plan, guys. Not only to save Israel, but to redeem you and me from our sin. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.